0: Welcome, and thank you for listening to the KNOCK Digest. Garment workers celebrate historic legislative win. New California law expands brand liability for wage theft and abolishes peace rate pay. By Sarah Michelson. A planned protest this past September turned into a celebratory press conference after the governor signed into law the Garment Worker Protection Act, or SB 62, the result of years of organizing by the Garment Workers Center and its allies. This legislation for garment worker protections is the first in the country to ban peace rate wages. It also strengthens an earlier anti-sweatshop law by holding brands accountable for labor violations in the factories that make the clothes they sell, regardless of how many layers of subcontracts they employ. Garment workers and their advocates and supporters, including nonprofits and socially responsible manufacturers, cheered outside the California market center where they had planned to escalate their campaign, some having planned to risk arrest. Francisco Tzul, who has sewed clothing in Los Angeles for decades, said it was the best day of his life. Zul works in an industry where subminimum wages are the norm. Though today's minimum wage in Los Angeles is $15 an hour, garment workers receive on average $5 an hour and as little as $1.25 an hour producing for Los Angeles' $5 billion garment industry. Randomly inspecting almost 100 L.A. garment factories, the Department of Labor found that 85% violated wage laws, meaning those factories pocketed money that workers had legally earned. Francisco says that for a long time he knew he wasn't being treated fairly and that the factories weren't safe, but he didn't have any idea what could be done about it. One day in the 1990s, he saw Kathy Lee Gifford's talk show and realized the name was familiar. It was on the label of some of the clothing he sewed, receiving a few cents per piece or around a dollar per finished product. Zool says he started to realize that while he struggled to afford rent in a one-bedroom apartment he shared with three friends, some people were getting very rich off the work he was doing, and those people were very far away. Over the years, he learned more about the industry and his rights from radio shows and activist friends. And by 2021, he was traveling to Sacramento to share his story with lawmakers and demand justice from big brands. Big brands, who demonstrated their power at the start of the pandemic by refusing to pay $40 billion, subcontracted factories that had begun or completed orders. Big brands design clothing, purchase materials, and sell finished products, but they don't want the responsibility of directly managing workers, so they subcontract that work to small factory owners. One former freelance production manager for big brands told me he found his work horrifying. He said brands dictate the pay per piece, knowing it isn't enough to pay a living wage. You just ask enough people until you get someone to say yes, he said. The brands didn't vet the subcontractors, he remembers. All they cared about was unit price and turnaround time. In an investigative report, the Department of Labor found that brands regularly pay factories just 73% of the price necessary to provide workers with the lowest possible legal minimum wage. Factories can appear and disappear quickly, offering the flexibility demanded by today's fast-fashion garment industry. Trends move so fast that there often isn't even enough time to source from overseas. As soon as Kim Kardashian's new look thrills her Instagram followers, Brands want a similar, cheaper look right away. It doesn't take much capital investment to open a garment factory, just rented space and rented sewing machines. And when factories don't have orders or don't want to face liability, they often just disappear. Anna has worked in about a dozen of those subcontracted factories, sometimes receiving as little as $210 a week for 57 hours of work. She says when workers stand up for their rights, bosses threaten to close the factory. And it isn't an empty threat factory owners sometimes gave her one day's notice that they no longer had work for her and other times she'd show up to work on a monday to find the factory empty it had shut down with no notice to the workers at all dangerous and exploitative conditions plagued garment factories from their start after the industrial revolution but labor organizing earned workers more power over their conditions the international ladies garment workers union led waves of strikes in cities across the country throughout the 20th century. This included a 1933 strike of over 3,000 L.A. garment workers that lasted almost a month and won garment workers higher wages and fewer hours. At its peak in the 1950s, the ILGWU represented 450,000 workers nationally, over 70% of the garment industry. Though the center of garment manufacturing moved from New York City to Los Angeles largely because of LA's reputation as an anti-union town, by the middle of the century, about half of LA's garment workers were unionized. For a few decades, garment workers enjoyed decent wages and benefits like health insurance, pensions, and retirement plans. Unions negotiated directly with brands, which often agreed to responsibility for subcontracted factories, or to abolish certain forms of subcontracting altogether. Because of their success in winning joint liability agreements, Some labor leaders even declared optimistically that we have wiped out the sweatshop. As union and worker power declined and working conditions deteriorated in the latter part of the century, workers became more fragmented and tried other strategies to improve their conditions and keep pressure on brands. Advocates pushed for new laws to require accountability from those who made the most money from workers' labor. In the early 1990s, California's legislator, passed three joint liability bills, but the governors vetoed them. Then, in 1992, a woman crawled through an AC duct in El Monte to escape her captors, who had forced her and 71 other people to sew clothing for 17 to 22 hours a day under threat of deportation and murder of their families. The woman first reached out to the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the INS, the precursor to ICE, which ignored the tip, When the victims were freed from captivity a few years later, the INS immediately re-imprisoned them in immigrant detention centers until advocates successfully agitated for their release. The traffickers had promised their victims, all from Thailand, lucrative jobs in the United States, but when they arrived in California, their captors stole their passports and forced them to live and work in an apartment building with boarded-up windows and 24-7 armed patrols. Retailers had legitimately purchased clothing made in these conditions, the LA Times reported, from brands that had subcontracted with shops that had subcontracted with the El Monte operation. Media coverage shocked and horrified the nation, who learned that major department stores were legally selling clothing made by enslaved people. The incident led to a new kind of visa for victims of human trafficking and to greater pressure to hold big actors accountable for abuse in their supply chains. In 1999, Governor Gray Davis signed AB 633 into law. Marissa Nuncio, director of the Garment Workers Center, says that while AB 633 didn't end up going far enough, when it passed, it was groundbreaking. It recognized the special vulnerability of garment workers by providing an expedited process for workers to resolve their claims. It also allowed workers to go up the supply chain for accountability. The Garment Worker Center formed with support from several local nonprofits in part to help workers navigate the process of filing wage claims with the Labor Commissioner. They recovered millions of dollars in back wages for garment workers. But there were major limitations to the bill. The Garment Worker Collaborative's evaluation six years later found that even workers who had successfully proven themselves to be victims of wage theft were only able to recover on average one-third of their stolen wages. 60% of guarantors, or brands, didn't pay a cent to workers despite the labor commissioner's orders. While some guarantors did pay the full amount, overall the report called the bill little more than an empty promise. What happened quickly in the industry was they found a loophole in 633, which was that only companies that could be proven to have direct contracts with these factories can be liable, says Matthew DeCarolis, an attorney at BetSetic Legal Services, which co-authored the bill. As a result, companies just created layers of subcontracting to evade responsibility. Nuncio says a tipping point came in 2019 during a campaign against Ross Dress for Less. Ross made $1.4 billion in profits that year, while the workers who made their products took home about $5 an hour, far less than the legal minimum wage. The retailer insisted that they had no responsibility for the workers who sewed the products they sold. Ross does not own or, or operate manufacturing operations in Los Angeles or elsewhere. They said in a statement, the claims made by the Garment Workers Center are between the manufacturers' subcontractors and their workers, not Ross employees. Meanwhile, on their website, they bragged, we're savvy, our buyers search the globe for the best brands and styles. We work directly with manufacturers to negotiate the best deals. In their Pay Up Ross campaign, workers and advocates held protests in the streets and disrupted Ross's shareholder meeting. Nuncio said the campaign was grounded in a moral argument, but because of subcontracting, no legal hook. The Garment Worker Protection Act makes several changes to state law. It prohibits paying garment workers per piece, which served as a cover for employers that illegally paid below minimum wage. The new law also adds stronger measures to impose liability on brands if their subcontractors fail to pay workers full legal wages. It empowers the labor commissioner to take action when workers present credible evidence. For example, workers could provide clothing, Labels that show the brand's relationship with the employer. Opponents of the legislation say labor abuses are the responsibility of the factory owners and that the bill goes too far in assigning blame. It's talking not only about the brands but the retailers, says Ilsa Mecek, president of the California Fashion Association, which represents banks, landlords, and other large corporations in the industry. That's an overreach. Retailers buy products from other brands, she says, and shouldn't be held responsible for their business operations. The bill will only affect retailers who use private label brands and similar strategies to shield their liability, say the bill's co-authors. For example, Urban Outfitters reaps half its profits from clothing with a variety of private label brands owned by Urban Outfitters. Now, Urban Outfitters could face responsibility for wage theft under the new law, not just the ephemeral brands that it owns. The Garment Worker Protection Act allows workers to take their claims to the most stable, resourced actors, says Nuncio the ones who profit most off their labor. In organizing meetings, workers discussed the political landscape and felt cautiously optimistic. Workers started reaching out to allies in the labor movement and ethical manufacturing world. They also said they wanted legislation to do even more. It should end the piece rate system. For over a century, organized garment workers have called for abolishing the system of paying per piece rather than per hour. The piece rate system they wrote in 1918 encourages dangerous overwork, underhanded methods of tricky employers, and even child labor as workers bring materials home to keep pace. We heard for decades that piece rate was the mechanism used to steal their wages, said Daisy Gonzalez, the Garment Workers Center's organizing director. Anna said the system helps her bosses avoid a clear answer to the question, how much will I be paid? They say, you'll know on payday, do you want the job or not? Rates of two or three cents per piece, unchanged for decades, also push people to a pace that can permanently damage their health. Anna is currently fighting to recover stolen wages from a Kardashian-owned brand. She spoke of working in a factory eight hours a day, six days a week, and receiving $210 for her work. The factory boss said he could increase it to $300 or more if she started working 12 hours a day. Even when workers did increase production, she said employers adjusted the piece rate down to avoid paying more. She's relieved that the piece rate system will be banned. With an hourly rate, we'll finally know ahead of time how much we make. In theory, piece rate can help employers precisely calculate costs, but that's complicated by the fact that workers have already won some protections. Employers must make up the difference if their earnings don't amount to minimum wage and must pay at least minimum wage for any non-productive time they spend at work, like setting up or transporting materials. Complying with those protections requires extra accounting, and generally the small business factories just don't do it. While opponents of the law say banning peace rate creates a disincentive to the goal of being competitive, and that sometimes peace rate wages can be good for workers, the law does allow for peace rate pay as an incentive for bonuses, and it allows unions to agree to peace rate pay as part of a collective bargaining agreement. The California Chamber of Commerce put this legislation for garment worker protections on its 2021 Job Killer list, and Mechak says brands will move their operations to Arizona, Nevada, or Texas for cheaper wages and fewer regulations. The bill's advocates say there just isn't enough infrastructure in those other states. Everything you need is here, says Bo Matthew Metz, founder and director of an ethical manufacturing studio, and a strong supporter of the bill. He says he can find wash houses, knitters, cutting services, and myriad other services just around the corner from his studio. You might save some money on an hourly rate for a sewer in Texas, but if you have to ship everything from your dye house in L.A. to Texas just to sew it, It doesn't pan out. Stronger legislation for garment worker protections may even lure business into California, say some researchers, rather than pushing it away. Our ethical business allies tell us that wage theft is deterring companies who want to set up shop in California, but are concerned about its atrocious track record, says Nuncio, Over 150 socially conscious brands endorse the bill. It isn't only the small specialty brands that advocates say will stay in or even return to California— they point to a concept called nearshoring or insourcing as opposed to offshoring or outsourcing, where some brands are actually moving more of their production back to the United States. If the pandemic taught the industry anything, says Sanjeev Bal, founder and director of denim manufacturer Cytex, it's that supply chains can be disrupted. Shipping costs have quadrupled since the pandemic. In March 2021, just 40% of global cargo shipments reach their destinations on time. Ball recently opened a factory in Los Angeles that pays $15 an hour and makes jeans for brands like Gap and J.Crew. He says the course of threats to move production elsewhere is lazy, a lack of innovation, and a deflection of responsibility. Businesses, he said, need to stop marginalizing and stop blaming labor. Aisha Byron Blatt, founder of anti-sweatshop nonprofit Remake, worked for 20 years in fashion's global supply chain and says Americans often wrongly assume that labor standards are always worse in other countries. Some of the worst conditions I've ever seen—cockroaches running around, poor lighting, no toilet paper in the bathrooms, work at an inhumane pace because piece rate is the standard—have been in California. She says the bill helps California catch up to places like Germany and France, which have already passed due diligence laws, and it can strengthen movements for similar laws elsewhere. After SB62 passed, Francisco Sul's friends in Guatemala saw him on TV and called to congratulate him saying they plan to organize for similar protections in the garment industry there. Legislation for garment worker protections has inspired similar bills in other industries in California. That's the power of policy, says Nuncio. You can get sound and good policy, and it can be built upon. The 1999 Act Protecting Garment Workers, for example, set up a restitution fund that inspired a similar bill four years later for car wash workers. The Garment Worker Restitution Fund was set up as a last resort for workers found to be victims of wage theft but unable to recover their wages either from the factory owner or the brand who hired them. Factory owners pay a paltry $75 a year in registration fees, which go into the fund. But because factory owners and brands have simply refused to pay back wages as ordered by the labor commissioner, the fund has been deeply in deficit. As a result, workers waited from 5 to 20 years to recover their funds. Fed up, in 2019, the Garment Workers Center organized workers to travel to Sacramento and demand a replenishment of the fund, which they won. That meant some workers finally recovered unpaid wages after years-long waits. It also meant corporations had successfully relinquished responsibility for wages it had stolen and passed the bill to taxpayers. For three years, Carmen Torres worked in a factory for almost 60 hours a week and took home just $70 a week. I went to the church for food to survive, she says. The struggle was exhausting. I tried asking my boss for more, but he said, if you don't like it, there's the door. When her employer laid her off, she went to the Garment Workers Center to file a wage theft complaint with the labor commissioner. It took two years for the office to rule that she'd been severely underpaid. The brand paid a share of her back wages, and the factory owner signed a document agreeing to pay her $26,000 over the next 11 months, but after five months he stopped paying and nobody could find him. The labor commissioner said she could get the rest of the money from the restitution fund, but she'd have to wait in a line that could take up to 20 years. Torres and other frustrated workers went to Sacramento to demand the government replenish the funds for workers like me who had worked hard and had their wages stolen. The bill's advocates say the new law could put enough pressure on brands that workers won't have to resort to the restitution fund. Torres, who turns 85 next month, says she hopes the next generation of garment workers will get to actually keep the money they earn. If you're a garment worker and your employer has stolen your wages, a.k.a. didn't fully pay you for the hours you worked, the Labor Commissioner might help you reclaim your money. It takes a long time and a lot of effort. You can reach out to the Garment Worker Center for assistance. 213-748-5866. Thank you for listening to the Knock Digest. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at knock.la, that's knock D O T L A. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash knock underscore la.